Hello, this is Noel Lim on ASEAN Speaks by Main Bank. On this morning's call, we stay current on ASEAN's electric mobility transition, China's Politburo shift towards a more accommodative stance towards the property sector, Bank of Japan's interest rates outlook, and if manufacturing downturn has bottomed in Singapore. Winston Poon, Head of Fixed Income Research, moderates the conversation. Hi, good morning, everyone. It's 8 o'clock on Monday. A quick recap for last week. U.S. stocks gained on growing optimism that the economy will avoid a recession. The S&P 500 index was up by 1% and the Nasdaq was up by about 2%. U.S. GDP expanded at an annualized rate of 2.4% in second quarter, beating consensus expectation. U.S. Consumer Sentiment Index from the University of Michigan climbed to the highest level since October 2021. And the unemployment and, and the Employment in Cost Index, which is a broad measure of wages and benefits, slow further. Hang Seng and Shanghai Composite Indices jumped 3-4%, following pro-growth message from the Politburo, and the property stocks jumped by the most since December. Uh, in ASEAN, Singapore and Malaysia stocks led gains, up by close to 3% on the week. Overall, it was a fairly broad-based risk-on sentiment in the market, Credit spreads tightened, energy commodity prices were higher, a brand crude price went up by almost 5% to $85 per barrel. The 10-year treasury yield increased 12 bips to 3.95%. At the FOMC meeting last week, US Fed high rate by 25 bips as widely expected, with no change to its forward guidance language in the statement. The current futures market pricing suggests that the Fed has reached a peak on rate hike. But at the press conference, Chair Powell reiterated that rate path will be data dependent, meeting by meeting, and the dot plot still suggests another 25 bit hike. He anticipated the ECB president, Christine Lagarde, said that the committee will keep an open mind at the next meeting in September. For Japan, the Bank of Japan kept its policy rate unchanged at minus 0.1%, but surprised by loosening its yield curve control on 10 year yield saying that the upper bound of 0.5% is no longer a hard limit. The 10-year JGB yield jumped 10 bit to about 0.55%. The Nikkei 225 index slumped by more than 2.5% in a knee-jerk reaction last Friday, but then recovered more of the losses. Now, for Malaysia, Prime Minister Anwar launched the Madani Economy Policy Framework. And later, we have Suhaimi to comment on this. This week, the key data to watch for include uh, China PMI, Eurozone CPI, and the US non-farm payroll, Amazon and Apple's earnings results. Uh, there are also three central bank uh, meetings, the RBA, uh, the Bank of Thailand, and the Bank of England, all are expected to high rate by 25 bit. Uh, this morning, we'll cover um, special reports on Malaysia by Sohaimi and Anand, a giga on a thematic report for ASEAN EV transition, macro updates on US, China, Singapore, and Indonesia, and Krishna on Singapore REITs. Uh, let's start with the uh, thematic reports um, from Suhaimi. Um, PM Anwar unveiled an ambitious plan to lift Malaysia to be a competitive economy and world-class investment destination uh, while raising the standard of living for the people. Uh, can you share more what Madani economy intends to achieve and the key targets. Good morning, uh, Winston. Morning, everyone. 
uh, so Madani Economy was launched by PM Thursday last week. So basically, it provides a narrative on Malaysia economy next 10 years. Uh, I think first and foremost, the government listed a number of structural issues and challenges, uh, including economy becoming domestically driven, declining investment share of GDP, falling competitiveness, deterioration in governance, rising national debt, low labor share of GDP as a result of low wages, low female labor force participation rate and inequality. In addressing this, uh, Madani economy aims to, by lifting economic growth to 55 to 6% versus current level of 4% to 5% uh, by becoming a competitive economy, attractive investment destination, uh, positioning itself as a digital and innovation-led economy, global leaders in Islamic finance, developing global players among the micro, small and medium enterprises. Uh, Amadani economy also aim to raise the floor for the people by means of respectable jobs with better pay, decent standard of living, equality and inclusivity, uh, improved basic infrastructure and public service. Narrative and framework sets medium-term targets, i.e. over the next 10 years. Uh, these are anchored on global benchmarks for the positioning and ranking of the Malaysian economy. Uh, namely, uh, we want to be top 30 largest economy over 10 years uh, against our current position of number 36. Uh, we want to be top 12 in global competitiveness ranking. Currently, we are number 27. Uh, we want to be top 25 on Human Development Index and top 25 in uh, Corruption Perception Index. Uh, currently, on both score, we are number 62. Uh, the government also aimed to increase the labour share of GDP to 40% from current 32%. Uh, also, raise female labour force participation rate to 60% from uh, last year's ratio of 55.8%. And um, lastly, uh, achieving budget deficit to GDP ratio of 3% or lower, uh, which is something that we are already aiming for over the next uh, few years. Um, the government is, um, I guess, hitting the ground running on uh, announcing plans, uh, roadmaps, and so on. So underscoring this, uh, Madani Economy launch uh, on the morning of 27th of July was followed by the unveiling of uh, part one of the National Energy Transition Roadmap in the afternoon by the Economy Ministry and the Ministry of Natural Resources, Environment and Climate Change. So NETR part one will be followed by NETR part two, as well as the National Industrial Master Plan or NIMP 2030 by end of August. Uh, we also have in September midterm review of the 12th Malaysia plan that spans the period 2021 to 2025. Um, in October, i.e. specifically 13 October, uh, we'll have the tabling of budget 2024, which we think will also be accompanied by the uh, tabling of Fiscal Responsibility Act and Government Procurement Act uh, by end of 2023 uh, to improve especially government uh, fiscal disciplines and uh, governance with regards to uh, procurement. So this is the second half of this event. So I mean, the real GDP target of 5.5 to 6% in the next 10 years, 
seems um, high compared to the usual four to five percent range. Do you think this is achievable? Yeah, honestly, I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, uh, with all these targets, you either meet it, miss it, or exceed it. Um, anything can happen, and anything is possible over the next uh ten years. Uh, I guess um the most important thing is for the government of the day to uh provide us with high frequency updates in terms of uh plans, uh policy initiatives and uh, implementation and execution. So we can gauge for ourselves uh, whether or not the government is uh, on track, uh, off the track or doing better uh, than uh, expected. Thanks, Suhaimi. Uh, we'll move to Anand on a similar topic. Um, last week, uh, there was Invest Malaysia, a special series on national energy roadmap. Anand, can you share what are the key highlights from the event? Yeah, good morning, everyone. So as so I mentioned, you know, after the Mandadi framework was uh, announced, uh, uh, we had the Invest Malaysia 2023 special series uh, in the afternoon. Uh, and that covered the launch of the National Energy Transition Roadmap. Now, there's a lot of data uh, in this report, especially around the 10 uh, catalytic uh, initiatives or projects, as you can see uh, later on in the report. But the three main highlights are this. You know, one, uh, to underscore our seriousness in changing the energy mix in Malaysia, uh, the government has you know, increased the renewable energy capacity target uh, to 70% uh, by 2050. You know, up to this point, we were looking at 40% uh, by 2035. So there's a real commitment uh, to plant up aggressively uh, in terms of RE, uh, and this will mostly be solar, obviously. The second thing is uh, it, the, the framework announced 10 catalytic projects or initiatives uh, under part one. Uh, and you can see this later on in the report, but it really covered everything to do with the, the renewable energy space, you know, uh, the uh, solar farms, energy storage, carbon capture uh, and utilization as well. And also even future mobility, uh, which, you know, Jigger's report uh, dovetails uh, very, uh, very nicely with. And the third thing to note about this framework is for the first time, households can explicitly play a part that yeah, they are included in the NETR so the NETR is offering them an income opportunity from leasing out their rooftops for solar power generation. So one of the uh, GLCs, Sime Derby Property, which is our, uh, one of our property picks, uh, also presented on their detailed plans uh, in terms of how they will uh, solarify uh, their township projects, uh, as well as uh, uh, engage in uh, solar farms with their huge land bank uh, to fulfill uh, this agenda of putting more money in households' pockets uh, from the NETR. So those are the three broad strokes. I think it's quite exciting. We are waiting for part two, as Suami mentioned, which will be announced by the end of August uh, in terms of uh, more of the opera operationalization uh, of this framework. But of the 10 projects, we already have one announced, uh, which uh, is at one gigawatt large-scale uh, integrated REE zone uh, in the south of the country in Johor. Uh, and that's expected to attract about 6 billion uh, in foreign investments uh, so far. Um, that's that's pretty much the NTTR. Okay, exciting plans. Do you think this will translate into a better market outlook for Malaysian equities? For example, do you think KLCI will see a year of two halves, as in the first half underperformance, but a rebound in the second half? Yeah, th I think as mentioned, you know, so policy policy making in the first half was a was a bit uh, lacking, so the market didn't have much to work with. 
Uh, so uh, that probably contributed to the fact that the market was one of the wor worst performers in uh, in ASEAN. The second half is going to be very different. As, as Suami has mentioned, we have a deluge uh, of policy announcements and frameworks being released, starting with Madani and NETR last week. So I think the market will have a lot more to work with. Uh, and at the same time, you have all the uh, economic uh, and market tailwinds from peaking interest rates, declining inflation, uh, you know, uh, China stabilization, weakening dollar. So it does look like Malaysia is set to, uh, or the Malaysian market is set to make up for lost ground uh, in the second half. So personally, I'm quite, quite constructive on the market. Thanks, Anand. And we'll move to Jiga uh, on a thematic report about ASEAN mobility comparing ASEAN progress in car makers' transition to green energy uh, compared to the global trend. Uh, Jiga, what... Uh, so, as we have uh, brought it out in our report, uh, if you look at the year-end 2022, ASEAN EV car sales as a share of total vehicle sales was just 2.1%. Now, this compares uh, with China at 29%, uh, Europe 21%, and global average of 14.4%. Uh, if we look at another comparable economy, which is uh, emerging economy as India, uh, it was 2.3%. Uh, India has jumped to about 3.5% 3 3 in 2023, first half. Uh, if we look at two-wheelers, uh, yeah, ASEAN is one of the top uh, three markets, and it is uh, electric vehicle penetration is only 4%, and that is primarily in Vietnam. The four-wheeler, if you look at ASEAN, is primarily in Thailand. So if you remove that, then the figure would go down even further. So, uh, you know, very clearly, uh, you know, the penetration is very low. Uh, the primary reason for this is that there is a lot of uh, green premium. So... Essentially, when we look at the subsidies and incentives offered in different markets, with the exception of Singapore, every other market has significantly higher final purchase price of uh, two-wheeler or four-wheeler that is electric versus uh, an internal combustion vehicle. And that is something which seems to be a major barrier. And uh, there are uh, virtually very small amount of uh, products available at uh, the average purchase price. So an average uh, uh, car that is sold in ASEAN is uh, USD 30 to 35,000, uh, but products are not available at, at that range uh, or lower. Uh, they are generally available at a higher range. And that is also another factor which is uh, not allowing this uh, uh, purchasing to uh, shift towards the electric vehicles. Uh, so these are the couple of uh, major factors that we found. Apart from this, we also find that uh, the policies uh, of the countries in terms of phase out of IC are not clear, uh, barring uh, some targets that are set by Malaysia, Thailand and Indonesia. But again, those are uh, not very comprehensive. Uh, and uh, last but not the least, uh, while uh, uh, you know ASEAN is home to uh, several uh, mineral-rich uh, geographies. Uh, the battery ecosystem has not developed because the ASEAN uh, auto industry is uh, significantly dominated by the Japanese, and the Japanese automakers have not yet taken to uh, the electric vehicle ecosystem in a in a big way. 
What are your top picks for this investment theme? So we have uh, so we have uh, companies in Indonesia which are specializing in providing battery minerals that includes Merdeka uh, Corp uh, and Wall Indonesia. Uh, then we have a company in uh, Malaysia which is in the uh, auto parts electronic side which is a big supplier to this industry that is Greatech. Uh, followed by uh, an EV platform company in Philippines, that is Ayala Corp. Uh, then we have a couple of uh, the uh, mobility companies, uh, which are in Singapore, that is Grab and Comfort Delgro. Uh, and then we have three companies, which are auto part companies uh, in Thailand. Thailand is the largest uh, auto part center within uh, ASEAN, uh, that is Apico High Tech. Samboon Advanced Technology and Thai Stanley Electric. Thanks, Jiga. We'll move Thank to you. macroeconomic updates for last week. Uh, let's start with uh, Suhaimi on the US Fed. Um, there was a 25 bit rate hike. What are the key takeaways, uh, Suhaimi? And do you think this is the final hike? Um, I think FOMC statement implies Fed keeps the door open for further hike, given that its current dot plot signals additional 50 basis point hikes in the second half of this year. And we already have 25 basis point hike um, last week. So there is uh, supposedly another 25 basis point increase at one of the remaining three FOMC meetings of this year, i.e. on 19, 20 September, 31st October to 1st November and the 12 to 13 uh, December. I think at the moment, uh, futures market is pricing in 80% to 20% split between pause and another 25 basis point hike at the 19 to 20th September FOMC. For the 31st October, 1st November FOMC meeting, the odds are 68% for no hike and 29% for 25 basis basis point hike and the the probability of uh, last week hike uh, was the last uh, remain the highest uh, for the final FOMC meeting this year on 12 to 13 December at 63 percent versus 25 percent odds for another 25 basis point hike so overall I think market is broadly betting uh, the Fed rate hike cycle has ended uh, as of the 25 with the 25 basis point hike uh, last week. Um, we maintain our view of OP, uh, FF, uh, Fed fund rate staying at current 525 to 5.5% level for the rest um, of the year. Admittedly, this is a fluid forecast uh, because I think between now and the next FOMC meeting and in relation to Fed's policy mandates on inflation and employment, they will respectively. And um, we will also be keeping an eye on the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas annual Jackson Hole conference next month on 24th to 26th August to see whether the Fed will provide stronger and clearer signal about uh, the Fed fund rates uh, direction. So um, I think between now and then, uh, our view on uh, Fed fund rate uh, will be influenced by how inflation job market data pan out as well as the narratives by Fed senior officials. Thanks, Suhaimi. Uh, we'll move to Erika on China. The property sector remains under pressures 
And on Friday last week, the data release showed that the outstanding amount of individual mortgages saw the first year-on-year -year decline on record based on data going back to 2011. What is the signal from the Politburo last week? Thanks, Vincent. Uh, yes, indeed. The worsening state of the property market had China's top decision-making body, its Politburo, elevating real estate risk to the top of the risk facing its economy. Real estate is one of the few sectors in China that is in worse shape than a year ago. So in June, sales were down 28% year-on-year, and construction starts are down 31% year-on-year, while resale prices have not meaningfully stabilized since uh, peaking two years ago. It is important to stop the downward spiral in the property market because as much as one-third of China's GDP is tied in some way to real estate. So this ranges from the construction industry to steelmaking and even the banks. A quarter of all bank loans are property-related. So these are mortgages or uh, loans to uh, property developers. While 70% uh, of all Chinese household assets are believed to be in property investments. So you can imagine that uh, if the value of a property keeps falling, Chinese consumers are going to be less willing to spend on cars or shopping or travel. And this will jeopardize China's consumption-led economic recovery. So going forward, we expect the central and local authorities to start tweaking property policies, but in a calibrated manner. So one way uh, is that they can start to ease the down payment ratios uh, for second tier cities from 30 to 20 percent. So another widely rumored move is that uh, home buyers that have paid off their mortgages uh, will be allowed to qualify for concessionary policies uh, that are usually reserved for first time home buyers. Do you think the PBOC will have to ease further, let's say cutting rate in the second half? We do not expect the PBOC to cut benchmark rates uh, in the second half, uh, at least not in the third quarter, uh, because of primarily the widening gap between uh, Fed rates, uh, ECB rates, and China's rate. So the PBOC, uh, we believe, uh, is very mindful of the capital outflow pressures. Uh, bottom line is uh, we do not expect uh, a massive easing um, in uh, monetary, fiscal or even housing policies. And um, as soon as uh, property prices start to stabilize, we expect the Chinese authorities to go back to staying the course um, and curbing property market froth. Thanks, Erika. I'll move to Brian. Um, on Indonesia. Um, there was Bank Indonesia meeting last week. The interest rate was kept unchanged. But I think um, the central bank will offer additional reduction in reserve requirement ratio for banks that achieve loan growth target for later this year. 
Hey, hi, Winston. Um, yeah, so our base case is for BI to uh, keep its policy rate unchanged uh, this year, uh, given that its uh, focus remains on rupiah stability amid the Fed's uh, continued rate hikes. So at the meeting, um, Governor said that BI expects further 25 basis points hike uh, from the Fed in September. Moreover, um, the central bank remains optimistic on growth and thus may not see an immediate need to show up growth with looser policy. Uh, BI expects the second quarter GDP to be stronger than the first quarter on robust domestic demand. And therefore, um, our base case is for the first rate cut only in the first quarter of next year alongside easing Fed. But that said, uh, there is a small probability that the conditions become ripe for an earlier than expected rate cut in the fourth quarter of 2023 if the Fed indeed ends its tightening cycle after September and signals more dovish policy ahead. Um, after all, inflation has already uh, returned to BI's 2-4% to target in Indonesia and is expected to uh, remain within target for the rest of the year. Thanks, Brian. Uh, we'll move to Hakbin on Singapore. The industrial production for June was released last week. Uh, Hakbin, any sign of the manufacturing downturn bottoming? Yeah, manufacturing saw a shallower contraction in June. It was better than expected. And actually, on a month-to-month seasonally adjusted basis, industrial production rose 5%. So I think there are encouraging signs. Uh, we think that the worst of the manufacturing downturn may be over. Um, I think the second point is that when you look at some electronics manufacturing, um, yes, electronics was down minus 2.9%, but that's been the lowest for quite a while. And actually, semiconductors rose 3.0% from a year ago. Uh, so I think there's a sign that the sort of tech uh, downturn also may be past its worst. I think the third point is that when you look at exports to China and Hong Kong, encouragingly, they have turned positive. So, you know, yes, the impact of reopening from China in the first quarter was kind of a lukewarm, but I think there are signs that that's starting to pick up and that should support the manufacturing side. So bottom line is, I think the worst of the contraction is over and that Singapore has narrowly avoided a technical recession with a better outlook in the second half. Thanks, Habin. We'll move to Andy for FX. Uh, BOJ lasting 0.5% uh, seems no longer a hard limit now. Uh, do you think the BOJ is paving way for a rate hike later this year? Uh, what does this mean for the Japanese yen? Hi, Winston. Uh, good morning. Uh, essentially, first answer to your question is uh, probably dollar yen is probably taking uh, small steps uh, lower. Uh, I think the sort of big sort of steps for the yen is probably going to be a function of um, JGB yields uh, rising a bit further. Uh, but yes, uh, I agree that the widening range of the YCC essentially is, um, it actually is a normalization on their part, uh, in our view. Uh, so seems from their language and actions, uh, they've been a bit careful not to pin this as a monetary tightening of uh, any sort to some extent, uh, given uh, that um, in some case, the economic case to exit a loose monetary policy stance is a bit uncertain. Uh, we do, though, interpret this as a first early gradual move towards exiting the YCC, eventually, uh, especially given the ballooning balance sheet. So our view is, I think, despite BOJ attempts to play down the start of the normalization cycle, uh, we think that uh, monetary tightening would have risen, leading potentially to more volatility for dollar-yen uh, in the coming uh, months or into end of the year. So in, in, in some ways, I think high tightening spec uh, speculation near term uh, 
uh, can risk uh, pushing dollar yen to about 135 levels uh, towards end of the year or even early next year, uh, a support level we have talked about for a while. Uh, our view is, I think, going forward, uh, one is that I think BOGA could adjust its forward guidance on YCC and interest rates uh, with possibility of further tweaks uh, in the name of um, greater flexibility and more sustainability for uh, monetary easing front. So most likely early part of next year in the first half, uh, if it's a high probability chance of a scrapping of YCC and them lifting of the negative policy rate. So we still expect uh, some sense of uh, higher probability of monetary policy normalization to begin only in early uh, 2024. Uh, and I think the rise of uh, negative policy call rate uh, to rise from minus 0.1% to 0% probably in the first quarter or second quarter of uh, uh, next year. Uh, the next uh, BOJ policy meeting is in September. Uh, it, it, so unlikely for any changes we think in September uh, for now. Uh, Vincent? Thanks, Andy. Uh, we'll move to Krishna on Singapore rate results. Uh, Krishna, how is the sector performance and what are the key things to watch for? Uh, morning, Vincent. Um, so for the Singapore REIT sector, uh, this uh, period, the quarter, second quarter was a bit of a dampener. Uh, distribution was down across the REITs on a year-on-year -year basis, uh, barring the hospitality names. This is in line with our expectation. Uh, but the key point, I think, for this period was uh, that we are seeing for the first signs of operational weakness. Uh, last few quarters was more about the funding cost side, uh, but this quarter we are seeing occupancy across subsectors uh, going down on a sequential basis. Uh, some REITs have even skipped their usual valuation round. Uh, that said, the bright spot is that the reversions are still positive and funding cost guidance hasn't materially changed. Uh, but that said, I think the outlook for uh, combined borrowing and hedging cost uh, remains un uncertain. Uh, so key things which we'll be watching out for is the broader economy, uh, like what uh, Agbin said, that whether the manufacturing sector has bottomed out or not, and the strength of retail sales. Uh, for the visitor arrivals, I think it will be important to um, for the second half outlook for the hospitality names, uh, especially that we have an upcoming F1 and then uh, the events in the 2024, the concert events in 2024. So those are the key things that we will be watching out for. Okay, thanks Krishna. And thanks everyone for joining the call. Have a good week. To access our research reports, contact a trading rep or download them from Maybank's trade platform. Follow us on the podcast platform that you use and please leave us a rating. I'm Noel Limonazian Speaks by Maybank. Bank.